talk to the Ephesian church about what it means now that you are in Christ, now that you're a Christian, now that you've received God's grace. What does it look like to honor God on the ground level of your life? So he says this, he says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's an illustration that I think will help us situate ourselves in terms of the tone and intention of this passage, and that is the illustration of smelling salts. So smelling salts are increasingly commonly, uh, common in, at the highest level of professional sports. And smelling salts are a particular compound that are designed to kind of violently awake your senses. Like cold water to the face, they're designed to kind of shock your body into complete alertness, to put all your senses, kind of produce a sensory overload to put all your senses on edge. And so they're used to rouse people out of a suboptimal state of consciousness. And so you can see why this is really maybe advantageous for athletes to right before the big game or going into the fourth quarter or the third period, um, to get that kind of surge of adrenaline to say, okay, it's go time. I need to be fully awake and alert because there's a lot on the line. And although coffee, sort of for me, functions as smelling salts as a father of four, um, I realize that you know you, we all need this kind of rousing every once in a while because the default setting of the human heart is you can go into kind of first, second gear, and then you sort of get used to things and you get lulled and you move into patterns and habits and you, all of a sudden you realize you've been on cruise control and you've just been kind of allowing the momentum of the past to move you forward. And it's easy to start moving through your days and your months and your years, kind of half awake, half asleep, half intentional, and you sort of get lulled into this complacency, at least I do. And if there's a smelling salt moment in the book of Ephesians, then this passage uh, it might be it. Paul wants the Ephesian church to be gripped with a clarity of intention and focus. He wants them to understand this is go time. This isn't, life isn't a game. You don't know how much time you have left. It's the fourth quarter. You're in the red zone. There is a lot at stake. There's an urgency to following Jesus. The call to follow Jesus isn't just, yeah, maybe I'll get around to it when things work out. It's go time. And he's using language that's very provocative to compel the Ephesians into a broader sense of awareness and to wake them up and say, oh, wow, yeah, I didn't realize, oh, okay, yeah, hmm. Paul wants the Ephesians to bring their best to the table. He says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And be careful how you live is trying to translate a Jewish idiom of be careful how you walk, meaning the lifestyle that you're living, how you're moving through your everyday normal life. And notice he doesn't just say be careful where you walk, but how you walk. And later he's gonna, ta- he's gonna juxtapose someone who's drunk with someone who's filled with the spirit. And he says be careful how you walk, and you can read the later part of the passage back into here, and he's saying, 
you know, don't just kind of move through life in kind of a meandering drunken stupor. Be focused and alert. You know, the time to wake up and to realize there's a lot at stake in the short and long term in terms of what God wants to accomplish, that needs to rouse you from just sort of uh, sliding into your Monday and see what happens and see where the wind blows. Paul says, be very careful how you walk. Not as unwise, not, not unfocused, but focused on God and his purposes. Psalm 90, 12 says, it's a prayer by the psalmist that says, God, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. God, help us to realize that even though there are stages of life where the days seem very long, the years are short, and none of us ever know how much time we have left through which to serve God and his purposes in this world. And so there's this call here, not to theoretical knowledge, but to act skillfully and wisely in the world and to make the most of the opportunities that you've been given. And what I think is really, really encouraging about that verse is that because it's given to the whole church, it's given to you, and the reason why it's given to you is because there's an urgency for you to live out your Christian life, because your life actually matters. It's not, well, there's huge urgency, so all of you should just support a few Christians or super Christians or the pastors and missionaries because they're doing the work. It's no, your lives matter collectively as the church. Your actions matter, your decisions matter. What you're doing on Tuesday afternoon matters. How, do you, how you move into your marriage, how you move into your work, what you're choosing to do with your spare time, that matters. The implications of becoming a Christian are not, oh, I'm saved, I'm gonna be in heaven one day, so now for the remainder of my life, I just kind of move into cruise control and just kind of do whatever. I just move into a very lackadaisical attitude towards life and mission. It's like, no, it's, it's the exact opposite. Now that you are a Christian, you have to rethink what it looks like to serve God through every dimension of your life. And you spend the rest of your life trying to do that faithfully. And you might say, why is there such urgency? Why be careful how you live? And I would say there's three reasons why you have a vested interest in, in being careful how you live as a Christian, as an individual. Your growth is at stake, your enjoyment of God is at stake, and your witness and influence is at stake. So the first thing is your growth is at stake. You're not going to advance in the Christian life without giving careful thought to your ways, right? There's a difference between living intentionally for Jesus and growing um, in depth and maturity every year for 20 years and following Jesus for one year and then going on autopilot for the next 19, right? Following Jesus into every year for 20 years is very different than just doing it one year and then just putting it on repeat and kind of abdicating responsibility to grow and learn. And there's a lot of Christians who do that. They follow Jesus faithfully for one year, then they kick it into cruise control, and they wonder why 20 years later they're not experiencing a lot of growth and dynamism. Your enjoyment of God is at stake. A lot of people want a vibrant, um, energized relationship and experience of God's leading in their life. But that doesn't come unless you are learning to progressively walk in obedience. It's, it's not that your salvation is contingent upon your faithfulness. Amen. But there are certain things that God can't bring into your life. There are certain ways God can't lead you. There are certain blessings that God simply will withhold if you're not walking in obedience. Again, not because 
he doesn't love you, it's because if you haven't shown yourself faithful in stewarding this, God can't necessarily bring certain blessings into your life. And so as we grow, as we learn to follow Jesus, we learn to enjoy God more. And so it's very important that we learn how to live wisely. And lastly, your witness and influence is at stake. The Bible says your life is no longer your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body or your life. And um, I can speak to many people who I know who are very, uh, have been very burned by Christians um, who seem to carry the Lord's name in vain. Not that they're using Jesus as a swear word. I just mean they're talking a big game about loving God and being a Christian, but their lives are really, really out of sorts with that. They don't show a graciousness. They don't show a patience. They don't show a self-sacrificial nature. I don't think the non-Christians in my life expect me to be perfect, but I think what they are presuming, if that God is really at work in my life and I really love this God, my life will progressively show maturity and growth and they'll be able to see that from the outside. And if they don't see that happening and if they see my immaturity compounding or they see um, fault lines in my life and patterns of sin and selfishness continuing to go unconfronted, then that affects my ability to influence them. And they begin wondering whether or not maybe God is real because they don't see the fruit of it in my life. Verse 16, make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Making the most of every opportunity comes from one Greek word, exagorazo, which some translations will, will translate as to buy back or to redeem, redeem the time because the days are evil. NIV tries to make it a bit more conversational and a bit more accessible to us. Make the most of every opportunity. But the appeal there is to ransom the time. It's the idea that time is working against you. You just don't have all the time that you would want. The clock's ticking, right? It's fourth quarter, there's five minutes left. This is not the time to play as if you have four quarters ahead of you. You've got lot, all the time in the world. No, the days are evil. The time is, is working against you. So you've got to come with an intention to make the most of whatever time you have. Jonathan Edwards, who is a philosopher theologian who God used to uh, bring about the Great Awakening in America in 1734 to 35, before the age of 20, he writes a number of resolutions, which are these statements where he's like, this is what I resolve to do as a Christian. And the 70th resolution you can just Google them and find them. They're pretty inspirational. A little overwhelming, but inspirational. The 70th re- resolution that he writes before his 20th birthday is resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way as I possibly can. It's like, John, chill a little bit. Like, that's pretty intense. <laughs> like, whoa, right? I could probably not live at that level of intensity where I'm scrutinizing every part of how I spent every day and saying, could I have entered into that in a more intentional and profitable way in terms of honoring God and loving people? It's super inspiring. And maybe none of us would ever be able to live at that kind of intensity day in and day out. But we can aspire to be followers of Jesus who more often than not are seeking to make good use of our time instead of squandering it. Now, please hear... Okay, this is what I don't want you to hear when I say that. 
or when you hear Jonathan Edwards saying, never to lose a moment of time, but to only use it in the most profitable way possible. What he's not saying, and what I wouldn't want you to hear is, you should just be reading your Bible and praying all the time and doing quote unquote spiritual things. That's not what this call is about. It's about doing all things spiritually, meaning to the glory of God and to the service of your neighbor. So for example, Again, you can hear that, and it's very easy to think, oh, so you mean the only way I I use my time well is to just always be reading my Bible, always praying, always serving in a really formal church or Christian ministry capacity? No, I think Jonathan Edwards is trying to convey this sense of living in a way that is wise and walking with focus and going into every sphere of life and all the dimensions of your life, yes, work, Yes, there's going to be obviously times where you're engaging scripture and, doing, and, and, and praying. Do those with focus. But also there's going to be times where you're resting. Rest well. Rest with focus. There's going to be times where you're going to be entering into recreation, having fun with friends. Do that, but do it well. Do it strategically and intentionally. Right? What's the most profitable way that I can go to work today? What's the most profitable way that I can play today? What's the most profitable way that I can read today? What's the most profitable way that I could serve today or love my spouse today or my kids today or a coworker or a friend? What's the most profitable way I could speak today? So it's not about filling your life with a few key spiritual things. It's about saying, how do I go into my whole life and just not kind of go through the motions but whether I'm resting to make sure I'm getting good rest, if I'm recreating, am I doing something that's actually allowing me to experience recreation and filling so that I can better serve other people? Am I loving well wholeheartedly or am I just kind of giving all the people around me crumbs? Live as wise. Make the most of every opportunity. That means moving into life with intention. And if you need help in this area like I did and still do, I'd highly recommend Tim Chalice's very, very short book, Do More Better. It's a very short, practical guide that will give you a Christian framework for time management and for energy management, and it will help you to effectively steward the life that God has given you. It's an excellent, excellent resource. It'll take you about an hour and a half max to read through the whole thing. Imminently practical, excellent. I think you can get it for like 10 bucks on Kindle. Verse 17, therefore don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. The Holy Spirit through Paul is saying God's will isn't something, isn't a matter of irrational impulse, but it comes about through intelligent reflection and action. And at different points in our life, we ask, what is God's will for my life? And maybe in that sort of 16 to 25 window, that's when that question really comes into focus. What is God's will for my life? And, you know, I think what's important to understand about that question is it's a supremely important question, but we're usually asking there needs to be a bit of a parsing out there because um, there's kind of two levels to that question. The first level is God's general will, but usually we're asking about God's specific will. And what I mean by that is, really, the Bible tells us God's general will for all people. And in fact, there are two, ver- uh, two passages in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit, through Paul, says, very, says explicitly, this is God's will for you. You don't, even, you don't have to wonder. This is it for everybody. Every Christian, across all cultures, all time, this is God's will for you. The first is 1 Thessalonians 4. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That means progressively growing in your faith, not in coasting mode. You should be growing deeper in your knowledge of Scripture, 
worship of God, prayer, service of people, that is God's will for you. You should avoid sexual immorality, all sexual play and engagement outside of marriage context. Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. So you're pursuing holiness. That's God's will. Every single Christian in this room. That's our starting point. For sure that. Second, or First Thessalonians, one chapter later, five. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So the Bible very clearly shows us what God's general will is for everybody. Now, some people, well, I would have when I was younger. That's not, that's not what I'm asking, though. Yeah, I get it. I should become like Jesus. What I'm asking is, like, should I go to this school or that school? Should I take this job or this job? Should I switch careers? Is it God's will for me to start a business? Now, again, those are really important questions, and you should be seeking God about those things. But now you're getting into God's kind of specific will or plan for your life. And while I think we um, need to focus on that, or there's going to be times where we're going to want to focus on those things, I don't think in general those are, those kinds of, that, that level of specificity, God often doesn't reveal and tell us. That's been my pastoral experience, walking with a, a number of people. Sometimes that happens, often it doesn't. And the reason why it doesn't is because, and I've mentioned this before, a Christian psychologist once said, if God were to actually show you his plan, his actual detailed plan for your life, for the next year or five years, like real blueprint, there it is, Jeff, here's where 2020, 21, 22 is gonna go. He said, people are gonna have one of two reactions. You're gonna run away in terror, or you're gonna be like, oh, is that the plan? No problem, I got this. You'll take it over and you'll, you will uh, shipwreck it out of your own elevated sense of wisdom. So often what God does is has us chase his general will, focus on that, and then use circumstances, people, scripture, sometimes saying, yes, turn right instead of turning left in, in some of these decisions in life, but often he's inviting us to learn how to navigate faithfully in the unknown so that we're learning to walk by faith, not having all the information, but trusting him and moving in a direction, but the whole time saying, God, if this isn't your specific will for my life, please do whatever you need to do to get me out of it. So I prayed and asked God to give me guidance as to whether me and my family should leave my previous pastoral post, you know, move our family all the way across Canada, but I never received a voice from on high saying, yes, I want you to move, pastor this church in this time, this is what your start date's gonna be, this is what I want you to do your first year, this is my plan for you. But I got lots of impressions and confirmations along the way that this general direction was gonna be good for me and my family. And it was gonna help us and help me move into God's general purposes for my life and strengthen those. And so when Paul here is talking about knowing God's will, I think he's talking about knowing God's general will because the Bible says that is something you can know. When we're growing in faith, when we're avoiding sexual immorality, when we're growing in holiness, when we're rejoicing and praying and giving thanks, those are the things that matter most to God, not necessarily the particularities around the context of us doing that. If those are our focus, we can be assured that we are in the will of God and we don't need to live with any kind of great anxiety about whether, oh, I, I picked up the multigrain Cheerios instead of the Captain Crunch. Like, is that gonna kind of set off a domino chain of events in the heavenlies where I've stepped outside of God's will? No, 
Although, why would you pick up Captain Crunch? Why would that even, why would that even be part of the choice? I think we can, that, maybe that, we, no, you could definitively say that isn't God's will, because that would be in the complete counter-movement of sanctification for your body. So, that's a, that's a bad example off the cuff, but you know, you know what I'm getting at. 18, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Debauchery, asotia, is a Greek word that means sort of like squandered or wasteful living. It's the idea that you've just kind of, you've had something, and now it's spilled out, it's broken, and it's, it's useless. And so Paul is saying, don't get drunk on wine, and therefore live a life that is unfocused and useless, but be filled with the Spirit. And drunkenness in the Bible is often used symbolically as a... Uh, to, to highlight the, to, to be a stand-in for the height of folly, a loss of direction, a wasted life outside of God's purposes and directions. And so what Paul says here, here is don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So he's introducing a really important contrast. But there are similarities between the conditions, right? Like, I think the Spirit would want us to understand that, like, you know, we, we would use the phrase, oh, they're under the influence, right? In referring to someone who's drunk on wine or, you know, maybe increasingly more like high on pot, right? Or something like that, or drugs. They're under the influence of this narcotic or this drug, but we're supposed to understand that same phrase in reference to the spirit. You should be able to look at someone and see the outlay of their life and actions and say, oh, they are under the influence. They're under the influence of God's spirit. But, it look, but from there, the similarities kind of end, and the way you understand and, and the reasons given for why you know they're under the influence diverge pretty rapidly. I know someone's under the influence of alcohol because they're slurring their speech, they're living unfocused, they're putting themselves in danger, they're not able to think rationally. They've, in a sense, handed over a part of their humanness. When someone's under the influence of the Spirit, what the Bible says is it's the exact opposite. They're more fully present, they're focused, they're engaged. They li- they're living from a posture of purpose and meaning. The Holy Spirit is given to believers in order to fill them with God's power and presence. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, one of them is self-control. Enkratia is the word. And it's this idea that as we come under God's power, again, we don't become these rigid robotic automatons, but we come into the fullness of our humanity and we're looking for ways to assert um, our calling on the world in, w- in ways that lead to our neighbors flourishing and good. Second Timothy, Paul writes to a younger protege and he says, you know, the spirit that God has given all of his children is a spirit of power and love and self-control. So Paul says, don't come under the influence of alcohol or any substance that robs you of your ability to move into life with intention. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? Real quickly, the form of the verb actually tells us a lot. First, it's in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. It's be filled. It's not, hey, if you get to this, if you want to think about it, or if you've got extra time, totally take this up as a hobby. It's if you're a Christian, you, you are to be filled, right? Secondly, it's plural, meaning it's not pastors be filled, SLT members, super Christians, if you've been Christians for like 15 years and you've got a pretty steady walk with Jesus, now you're ready to be filled. It's every Christian, anybody who calls on the name of Jesus, whether you're one day old Christian or you've been walking with Christ for decades, regardless of whether you have a title within the church, doesn't matter what your spiritual gifts are, this is for everybody. It's not an elitist privilege 
Third, it's a passive voice, which means it's meant to insinuate, let the Holy Spirit fill you. So being filled with the Spirit isn't something that you have to go to the ends of the earth and strive to achieve and chase after because it's so difficult because kind of like the Spirit's ahead of you and he's dangling a carrot and a stick and if you just figure out how to fully exert yourself, you might be able to grab it and access the life God has for you. It's not that at all. The picture is the Holy Spirit wants to fill you with God's presence and power. So what you need to do is to look at the things that are running interference and blocking, things that are grieving the Holy Spirit, known sin in your life, wasteful ways of living, known sin, and, and, and being willing as a Christian to say, God, if there's any unrighteous way in me, if there's any sin that I have a blind spot to, would you show that to me? Because I want to be filled with your spirit. I don't want to create a bottleneck. I don't want to be the bottleneck in terms of your power and grace working in my life. And lastly, it's in the present tense. So in the Greek, there are two kinds of the imperative. The aorist describes a single action and the present tense, or the present, which um, indicates that the action is continuous. And when Paul says, be filled with the spirit, he uses the present imperative of the verb, which implies this is an ongoing action. So it's not be filled, like we're gonna pray once and have some kind of ecstatic reaction. Bam, you're filled with the spirit, one and done, sweet. It's a posture where every day I'm inviting God to fill me with his presence. We have the Holy Spirit. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Bible makes that clear. But to be filled with the Spirit is this idea that you're operating from a place of abundance and a place from strength, right? If, uh, if my car has a little bit of gas in it, it has gas in the car, but if it has a lot, I can move through the day confident because it's, it's fully empowered. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. And this is an ongoing thing. It's a posture towards God that we cultivate. And then the rest of the passage is basically Paul saying, answering the question, well, what does it look like to have a life filled with the Spirit? Because depending on the church background that you come from, to be filled with the Spirit can run a, a pretty significant spectrum and gamut. And so Paul makes it very clear. He says there's going to be, broadly speaking, four characteristics of a Christian who is Spirit-filled. Fellowship, worship, gratitude, and submission. Maybe not the only things. That list might not be exhaustive, but Paul says this is going to be the characteristic of someone who is filled with the Spirit. He says, 19, speaking to one another. So he's presuming fellowship with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs of the Spirit. Sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord. So we're singing to one another. We're encouraging one another. We're building each other up. We're singing songs to God. That's worship. We're gathering together. 20, always giving thanks to God the Father through everything in the name of Jesus. So there's a spirit of thanksgiving and gratitude that suffuses our relationships. And we're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, when I get back in a few weeks, I'm going to have to unpack that word submission, especially as we move into the next verse, which is wives submit to your husbands, because that is a loaded verse, a loaded term. Getting it wrong has all kinds of, a, a wake of catastrophic consequ consequences. But again, Think about this word in the context, at least, of what Paul has been talking about as it relates to living a life that is wise and not unwise, making the most of every opportunity. Don't get drunk. Don't come under the influence of alcohol. Come under the influence of the Spirit. I think part of what we can take away here that will frame the discussion moving forward as we get into marriage, when Paul is talking to the whole church, he says, be a church where you're coming under the influence of each other meaning no one in the church feels like they're untouchable, unteachable, they're on another level, or certain people 
can, I'll, I'll allow myself as the pastor of this church to come under the influence of certain people who I deem worthy, but not everyone has the ability to speak into my life, right? That would be a lack of submission. I, as a pastor, need to model being in submission to this entire community, which means I don't run the show. I'm not the capital L leader. Jesus is the capital L leader. I'm the servant, and I lead by serving. And I do that by submitting. Now, again, there's lots of questions in terms of, does that make, are you saying you have to be a doormat or you're just doing what other people are always telling you to do? We'll get into that in a few weeks. But the spirit here is instead of thinking, well, when I'm filled with the spirit, I am gonna be aggressive and self-assertive and brash. And that's the evidence that the Holy Spirit's working, that I can get in people's faces and I can speak truth and I can give people tough love. That's the real evidence of the spirit's work. Paul says, no, the actual evidence is that you're going to be gentle and you're gonna be in submission, and you're gonna be quick to listen, slow to speak, Jeff. And so again, it's coming back to this posture of speaking to one another, worship, gratitude, and being able to come under the influence of other people, recognize that God has given other people wisdom. You need to learn from other people. And there are times where they're gonna need to come under your influence. There are many times where you're gonna need to come under their influence. But it's not a leader lay thing it's everybody we're to submit to each other in christ out of love so a lot in this passage but again i want to bring us back to this idea of smelling salts because every once in a while we need that in our lives we need experiences uh, conversations a message a song that kind of shakes us awake when we're so that we can be fully alert and aware of reality and say oh wow okay this we're I gotta go, I, I've been kind of, I, I've just been on cruise control. I gotta go, I gotta find a different gear. And again, your life matters. Your decisions matter. Your obedience to God matters. Maybe more than we can ever even understand this side of heaven. And so let this passage be a smelling salt to your life. Don't waste your life. Don't squander it. Don't squander the time that has been given to you. Ask God to help you number your days so that you can gain a heart of wisdom. Enter into your normal, everyday life with the intention to bring God's goodness and glory to bear on as many things and on as many people as possible. Let's pray. God, we want to be filled with the Spirit. I want that for this community. I want these marks of fellowship and worship and gratitude and submission to be evident in my life. I want it to be evident in our life as a church. Would you do the work that needs to happen for that, uh, in order for that fruit to uh, just continue to move, uh, to kind of express itself? And for those this morning who are listening and who um, are seeking you, who don't know you, who are wondering about what it looks like to become a Christian God, would you just gently lead them towards the truth that is in Jesus? In your name, amen.